0: We thank you, Lord, for this time of the year, this season where we can uh, celebrate you giving of your son. Um, And, Lord, I'm especially thankful because this isn't the only time of year we celebrate Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins. This is a normal occurrence for us, but particularly this time of year, uh, we get to make a big deal about who Jesus is and why he came. And so, Lord, I pray we would take full advantage of this opportunity to glorify you and show your glory off to the rest of the world. Um, and so, Lord, be with us during this time. May your word uh, come forth with great clarity uh, as you seek to encourage us uh, with the message that you have for us today. And so we pray all these things in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine called me up on the phone and he, uh, he said, he said, Kurt, I need you to help me move. I need you to help me move this bed. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, I can, I can help move this bed. It's, we're probably just going to move it from one room to the other. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal because, you know, he didn't explain much. He just said we need to move a bed. And so obviously I'm a guy, so I don't ask any more questions. I just say, move a bed. I got you. Um, and so uh, I go out with him. And uh, first we have, to, we have to drive over to Jersey to pick the truck up. Uh, and then we have to go to uh, the house that has the bed. Uh, and so when we pull up to the house, I realized whose house we were going into, um, and understand this is a friend of his who uh, is a professional athlete, and and you know they don't buy cheap stuff, right? So it's not like this little IKEA bed um, that you know is where the wood is real, you know, light, you know what I'm saying? And so and so I walk, we walk upstairs and go into the room, and and we start looking at this bed, and as soon as I looked at it, I look at him and I say. I'm the only person you called to help move this thing, right? And so, so we, go to, we go to this bed, and the bed has three sections on it. And it has the headboard section, and then it has a middle section, and then it has a real heavy section at, at, at the end of the bed. And you can tell by looking at this thing that it's going to be a booger trying to move, Right. And so we get we, we but luckily, praise God, this thing separates so you can take it down into pieces. Right. As so, Amen. Amen. somebody hey, you wasn't even there, but I was I was worshiping. So we take the headboard off and we move it out. No problem. Right. And so we get to we get to take apart the middle section and then the end section, the, the two heaviest parts. And so we get we get three of the four screws out that we need to get out and we get to the last screw and realize that the screw has been stripped. And there's no way for us to carry that heavy bed with, like that with one screw, because that thing will fall apart, will end up breaking the bed, the wood will be all chipped, and it was a dope bed, so, you know what I mean, dope in a good way. Um, and so, like, we wanted to make sure we kept the bed intact as we were moving it, and so we had to re-screw the middle part to the, to the end part, which, like, the heavy, this, so we got this one big heavy piece that we got to figure out trying to maneuver down the steps to put into the truck and then transport to Philly to move back up some steps. So this the, the guy's house we were at. Um, you know he's kind of he's kind of big. You know professional athletes. You know they in shape and stuff. So I wasn't too worried about it because I was like, well, you know, as long as I ain't on the bottom as we go down the steps, I'm good. You know what I mean? And so so he did he did a lot of the work. You know, the grunt work getting it down the steps and getting into the car. And so um the whole way back, I'm fearful because I'm like, man, he's not coming with us. And so it's just gonna be me and my man trying to get this thing up the steps. I don't know how this gonna work. And so, so I'm like, oh Lord, give me some extra strength because I had slipped in the shower the week before. So, you know, my back wasn't hundred percent. You know what I mean? And so so we got to us, so we got <laughs> so we got to his house, um, and we we carried stuff in and uh And so we get this heavy piece and we're carrying it, man, this thing is heavy, heavy than a mug. So we get it into the house and we we take it close enough to the steps and I'm like, yo, we got to drop this thing because I need a break or something before we try this, this crazy task of sending this thing up the steps. And so we like, all right, we take a break. His wife is sitting on the couch, and she's like, you know what, y'all need something to drink so y'all can kind of get refreshed a little bit and, and energized and get ready for this great task ahead of you. And so, um, so we go to the fridge, and he's like, all right, we got a couple options for you. You can either have some water or some Kool-Aid. Now, if you know Kool-Aid, it's basically like uh, uh, liquid diabetes in a, in a cup. Now, this is a little side tangent, but if you want some good Kool-Aid, what you do is you you got to warm the water first. got to warm the water so that when you put it in the jar, you, you put it in the jar and it's warm, and then you add a little of the sugar. And what it does is it, it, helps, it helps dissolve the particles nice and good. Right. And so you get this nice little thick mixture at the bottom of warm water and sugar. I know you. Somebody better say amen. amen. And so so what happens is you you mix the, the, the powder in there, a little bit of sugar, not too much because Kool-Aid sweet enough as it is. And it dissolves nicely. And then you add the cold water and that's how you get this good sh- Kool-Aid. And see, I could tell by looking at it that he mixed it right. And you can tell when somebody don't mix it right because you still got a little sugar on the bottom. So always, see, y'all going to be looking at people Kool-Aid from now on. I know y'all is. But so, so, so anyway, he offers me water and Kool-Aid, and I was tempted by that Kool-Aid. Because if you know, like, just the, I mean, African-Americans, we just, like, you lay some Kool-Aid out in front of us. It's just something with that. I know I'm stereotyping right now, but I'm sorry. But y'all know it's true. Like, so, so I was tempted. Um, So. But, but something in me said, you know what, I, like I know if you've ever been tired to the point like where you felt like you was about to die, water is the best tasting thing in the world. And so I said, you know what, let me, let me be good right now and drink some water. And so I said, I'm going to get some water. And he's like, ah, dang, I know I should get some water, but I'm going to drink some Kool-Aid. And so, so he got some Kool-Aid and I got some water. And as soon as the water hit my tongue and started to go down, I felt, it just, I felt it hit every single vital organ in my body. Like I felt it just covering my heart and going down to my kidneys and, and in my, I just felt like that's how, that's how thirst quenching it was. And as soon as I drank it, it was like, it was ice cold and it just had this crispness to it that refreshed me and got me excited about this great task of carrying it up the bed because water, as simple as it was, did something enough to refresh me so that I was ready for the task ahead. And so my, my friend, he, he, he drank Kool-Aid, which has water in it, but this water is diluted because of all the sugar and all of the nutrients that aren't necessarily good for you when you have too much of it. And so as we started to lift this thing up the first step, I'm ready to go. And he's like, he's like, hold up, hold up, Kurt. I should have drank some water because this Kool-Aid ain't cutting it. And I was like, and, and you know, the gospel is like that. See, the, the gospel is, is it's like water. It's very simple, yet it's very complex. See, like, you, you need water to live, right? But, you, but, but not only do you need water to live, you need it to continue. Like, most of us don't drink that 8 to 10 cups we're supposed to be drinking a day. But if you, fi- if you run into that person who's drinking that 8 to 10 cups you're supposed to be getting a day, most likely they're in shape. Because to drink that much water, you got to be disciplined. And if you're that much, if you're that disciplined drinking water, then the rest of your eating habits are probably falling in line with that discipline and self-control. However, most of us aren't like that. And so for the gospel, the gospel is is just like water in the fact that we need it for, for life. You need it for life. But then after after life has come and you have life inside of you, like you can't just stop taking just like water. You can't stop drinking water. You you can't stop feeding yourself with this gospel because you need it to continue on. And so 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 when you. When, you, when, when, when we think about this gospel, even though it's so simplistic and even though we hear it all the time and even though we, we think about it as this only, this, this hearing the gospel and needing of the gospel uh, at this particular happening, and particular p- spot in life at salvation, Paul, as he writes this letter to this group of people, is saying, yes, we need it and it's essential for life and salvation, but don't be mistaken by thinking you don't continually need the gospel for the rest of your life. And so, as we as we we're about to jump into Romans chapter one, turn it with me, Romans chapter one. And so, and so Paul Paul here is writing this to this group of people. He's he's writing to uh, the believers at Rome, and, and he's getting ready to dive in in this first chapter. He kind of this is like the thesis of the rest of the book in two in two verses here, and he kind of sums up in these two verses like what he is going to be writing about um, in the rest of this book. Now, just for for the sake of uh, context, um, the church at Rome was a little different than most of the churches that Paul wrote to. Um, Because if you think of the the Galatian church and the church at Ephesus and and Thessalonica, these were churches that Paul had an intimate relationship with. Like he had planted these churches and he had stayed there for some time and discipled many of the believers there. And for, for this church at Rome, Paul really didn't have much of a relationship with them other than some of the people he had met, you know, through his, his travels and his journeys, but he had never visited Rome, and, and this church wasn't planted by him. And most would say that, that uh, at, uh, when the 3,000 got saved, when Peter preached uh, on that day of Pentecost, that some of those took the gospel back to Rome and the church got started, but Paul really doesn't have a developed relationship with this group of people right? And so, so it's it's funny to me that Paul speaks of them with such fondness as though he has a deep relationship with them, but he does so because he understands that they have a connectivity with one another based on the gospel, right? And so one of the first things he, he talks to them about is the relationship that they have with the gospel, and he repeats it again. And he knows that they know the gospel because he knows that they're Christians. We're going to read it in a second, but he wants the gospel for them to be uh, one of those oldies but goodies. He wants it to be. He wants the gospel to be that jam you hear on the radio that just takes you back in a in a, in a flash. That jam, when you hear it, you remember where you were and what you were doing. And you start singing along because even though you haven't listened to it in 15 years, you still remember every single word to it. He's, this is what the, he wants the gospel to be for them. He wants it to be so good and so memorable for them that when he brings it up, even though you have it and know its power, it just sparks something in you of affection and love for Jesus that you begin to remember where you were when you first heard it and how it impacted your life. you with me? Romans chapter 1. Let's dive in here. Let's, let's start at, I'm going to read a little bit, uh, a little beforehand, and, and then we'll get it. Let's start at verse, verse 8 here. Uh, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, uh, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. This is where we're about to dive in. Verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As I read this passage, Uh, One of the first things that stuck out to me was he goes through in verses 8 through 14, Paul goes through this introduction of basically uh, praising the Roman, the church at Rome. And he's saying, yo, like your faith has basically uh, has preceded your reputation. Like when people think of you, they know about your faith. And I pray for you guys that you would continue to remain faithful. And Paul talks about his longing to visit Rome and to see this church and to, to be mutually encouraged. Uh, by them and to them. And so uh, and so, he, he says in verse 15, he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And this jumped out to me because one of, the, one of the key things we understand based on the language that he uses prior to this verse is he is writing this letter to believers who are already at Rome. And yet, yet he has this eagerness. He has this this excited anticipation to preach the gospel to them. Like this, like Paul could have wrote about anything else to this group of believers. He could have wrote about how, how, how dope he was as an apostolic missionary. He could have wrote about uh, just encouraging them in the faith. But it, it, it's, it's clear to me that Paul had something in mind when he thinks about this group of believers and he's thinking and saying, what, like, what is the best way that I can break the ice with this group of people? What is the best way that I can show that we're like-minded and that we can get to know one another before I get there so they can know I, who I am and I can know who they are? And he says, the best way to do that is for me to preach the gospel to you, to those who are already believers, to those who have already trusted in Christ. I'm going to preach the gospel. And so he says, he says, he says, if we look at verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let's stop there. Before we get into Paul talking about um, him not being ashamed, let's, let's talk a little bit about what the gospel is. we're going to go into more depth in a little bit as we walk through the different, uh, the different um, pieces of salvation or aspects, the different aspects of salvation. Um, Now, back in Paul's day, gospel the word gospel meant good news but it wasn't it didn't mean good news in the same way that we use it in relating to the testimony of Jesus Christ for them when they said gospel it was referring just to good information that they got for instance when there was a when a war broke out as they were waiting for messengers to come back with information about how the war was going whether they were winning or not whether they killed everybody, they would say, "Like, let us come out and wait for the messenger, in hopes that he would bring us a gospel, or he would bring us good news. He would bring us a message that would would fill our souls with joy, right? And so th- that was the way this term was used early on. And so after Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus comes on the scene. He lives, dies. After the resurrection, um, the 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 context." Uh, that people used when they talked about the gospel completely changed. And it no longer was just uh, isolated or limited to good news, but was more so exclusively used of Jesus Christ and his life and the hope that he brings and the message of hope and salvation that he brings for men. And so now when people hear the word gospel after the resurrection, post-resurrection, they think about the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul uses this word gospel here, he uses it in a very specific term, which, which completely eliminates the idea of anything else outside of Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul uses it in a very specific way because he, he, he talks about, let me not get ahead of myself. Let's go back. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So we, we, the, the gospel being the testimony Of the Lord Jesus Christ so when we talk about the gospel we have to add some very specific pieces to the gospel because it's very specific it's specific in the sense that we talk about the life of Jesus him being God coming in the flesh and living a perfect life of obedience fulfilling all of the law that God had given to Israel right but then it also, the, 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 the gospel also includes not just his life, but him being crucified on a cross. But then it also includes, it doesn't just stop with him being crucified on a cross, but it, but it includes him being buried, and then after three days being resurrected, and the tomb being empty. And so when we talk about the gospel, there are some specific aspects of the gospel that we have to include. We have to include Jesus' perfect life of obedience, him being God coming in the flesh, him dying on the cross, and him raising from the dead, right? And so Paul says, he says, I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of this gospel, and I, I find it funny that Paul uses uh, this language as one of the first ideas that he wants to uh, communicate with this church at Rome in relation to the gospel, not being ashamed. Now, mind you, Rome at the time was like the, the, the epicenter of the world. Like they had conquered land and they were basically running it. And so uh, basically the, probably the foremost opposition of the church was the Roman Empire at that time. And so Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think, it was more so, um, I think it was more so than him just saying, me personally, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But I think he was using that as a source of encouragement for the believers there also to take heart in what the gospel offers and, and not to be ashamed. And he's going to get into why exactly he wasn't ashamed. And so when we see Paul not being ashamed, it's easy for us to think about uh, Paul being shipwrecked. And Paul being stoned and beaten and imprisoned and dragged out and, and left for dead as this, this great missionary. And I think Paul, Paul would say that, yes, if he had to boast about it, he would boast about it not for the sake of him, but for the sake of Christ, because all of things have happened all of these things have happened to him on account of the gospel. Uh, but I want us to keep in mind that Paul was not the first Christian to be unashamed for the gospel. Paul was not the first Christian to be bold. And I believe with all earnesty and diligence that that as Paul is writing this, like he's looking back on the example left to him, not only by Jesus, but by believers before him. Keeping in mind that Paul Paul was probably the foremost, foremost persecutor of the church. Paul, especially one instance in particular, matter of fact, Paul's, Paul's reputation preceded him. Cats all over the place knew who, Saul, knew who Paul was. His name was Saul at the time. Everybody knew who Saul was. Matter of fact, when he, became, when he came to know Christ, they were a little skeptical of him because they know what he had done to the church. In particular, one dude named Stephen, Paul is sitting up chilling, looking in affirmation as they're stoning him. And dude's looking at Paul trying to get the green light in the go-ahead. And Paul looking at this dude, Stephen, praying for them as they're stoning him to death. And I think Paul here, when he, when he thinks about the power of this gospel and what the gospel means in relation to men being saved, he's saying, listen, it is, by, it is, it is most necessary that we are not ashamed of this gospel. It is of utmost importance that we are not ashamed of this gospel because the minute that we are ashamed then people have to question the legitimacy of what we what it is that we believe. See that is that's one of the circumstantial evidence pieces that people bring up when they talk about the resurrection of Jesus. If if the disciples were not positively assured that Jesus rose from the dead the, the dead they would have changed their minds. But they were unashamed. And I think Paul here has given us a source of encouragement. Like, like it, the, At this point, if you truly believe what it is we're talking about when we say the gospel, then you understand that the priority of seeing lost people come to know Jesus is no longer about our personal comfort, but has everything to do about them hearing about who Jesus is. So the question becomes, are we willing to face and endure the unthinkable on our behalf so that some way, some, someone somewhere may hear about who Jesus is? Because people aren't getting saved by your testimony or about what Jesus is doing in your life. People aren't getting saved based on uh, 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 social justice Or humanitarian efforts. People are being saved by coming face to face with the knowledge of who Jesus is. And him and him alone. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, for I'm not ashamed. Don't be ashamed of this gospel if you believe it. If you believe it. And he goes on further. Look at it. He he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, for the gospel, is the power of God. It's the dunamis or dynamite. That's what that word power means. It means means it's the power of God. And so Paul is saying if you believe this gospel to be the power of God, why would you be ashamed? God God has used, He has utilized this gospel. He has a special relationship with the gospel that allows the gospel to be the direct access and power of God for men to come to know Jesus. And so he says, I'm not ashamed, for the gospel is the dunamus, the power of God. And then he says, he says, for salvation. And so Paul, says, Paul tells us here, he says, he says, one, I'm not ashamed. And I'm not ashamed because, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. And not only is the power of God, but as it goes out in power, it has a specific purpose. For salvation. Let's talk about some of these aspects of salvation. The first aspect in understanding this idea of salvation or this, this need to be saved is total depravity. Say total depravity. Total is, depravity is the reality that all man, because of sin, has been totally and utterly separated from God. Meaning that you have, there is no connectivity, and you have absolutely no hope. And that means, that, that's everybody. You are born sinner. Because of Adam's sin, but also because of your sin. And your personal rebellion against God. So total depravity says that there is, you are completely and utterly separated from God, and there is absolutely no hope for you. Right? Now say uh, propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation is Jesus acting as a substitute to appease the wrath of God on our behalf and to take on himself the penalty penalty that was caused by the offense. Meaning, because we are totally and utterly separated from God and we're unable to save ourselves, we are in need for someone to come in and take our place. And so when we use this word propitiation it has more to do than just removal of sin because we're we'll getting into the character of God and him being holy just and righteous and what that means in relation to us being saved but God has to do more than just remove the sin because there is a great offense uh, th- like our sin is a great offense against God basically a high treason deserving of death Right now, in order for this debt to be freed, it's not like debt forgiveness where you're just in a bad situation and somebody has pity on you and they say, You know what? You don't have to pay the debt. Like, in order for God to remain being just, in order for Him to, for His standard not to be impeached, in order for Him to remain holy in His hatred of sin, somebody has to pay the price for your penalty. The problem is, you can't pay the price yourself because your your life isn't worth enough. Romans will go on later. Uh, I mean, Paul will go on later in Romans and say he says, "By no works of the flesh shall man be justified." David in Psalms even writes. He says he says, "Lord, there's no way for ourselves for us to save ourselves because man our life our life isn't worth enough." Right. And so there's this idea of us being separated and needing a savior and not just for our sin to be forgiven, but for somebody to pay the debt that we owe. And so propitiation is Jesus coming in front of the judge and not removing the sin or arguing our case for us. But he argues our case by standing in our place and taking the full wrath of God on himself. Propitiation. Say justification. 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 Man is guilty before God, therefore God must deal with the offense, otherwise he would be unjust, unholy, and unrighteous. By grace alone, which is man benefiting from God because of a response to his own love, through faith alone and Christ alone, God makes man or declares man to be innocent because Jesus was our propitiation. So, in, in other words, justification is God declaring us To be in good standing with him based on Jesus being our substitute. Y'all with me? So we have Jesus as our substitute and we have God declaring us to be in good standing because Jesus is our substitute. Gifted righteousness. Because man has been declared innocent by no doing of his own. Let me reiterate, we play absolutely no role in this. Because man has been declared innocent by God through Jesus... We are recipients of his good standing, not because of anything we have done, but because everything that has been done for us. Propitiation, Jesus standing in our place. I'm, I'm reiterating this for a reason. Jesus, that propitiation, Jesus standing in our place and taking the wrath that was supposed to be for us. Justification is us being declared in good standing because of Jesus taking that wrath. Gifted righteousness is now that we're in good standing, God sees us based on a particular work that was done, not that we did, but that Jesus did for us through his propitiating work. Y'all with me? Salvation. So Paul here says, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for everything that we just talked about, salvation. The gospel is the power of God because... For salvation to man in his understanding of God being his substitute, God needing a savior, Jesus being his substitute, man having faith in Jesus and therefore being declared in good standing and being made righteous because of a work that Jesus did and not that we did. He says, this is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for this salvation. This is what the gospel accomplishes for us. When the gospel goes forth, it accomplishes everything that we talk about because it's what? It's the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which people get to hear, one, their need for a Savior, but then how the Savior came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and then resurrected on behalf of them because he had to accomplish this great mission of having men be declared righteous before God. Otherwise, they would face the wrath of God for the rest of eternity. That's the gospel. And so Paul says, he says, I'm not ashamed of it because I know what the gospel is. I know the power of the gospel. I know that the the work that the gospel has come to do. I know that man will never trust Christ if they don't hear this message. Man will never, ever in his wildest dream, desire God. He goes on in chapter 3 to say, like, no one looks after God. No one wants a relationship with God. That's why we need to share the gospel. That's what makes it such good news. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he makes a quick distinction. And Paul, Paul uses this distinction often when he talks about the, the relation of uh, salvific history in relation to Jews and Gentiles. Now, I think he mentions it in the beginning here. I believe he mentions it specifically in the beginning here because at the time, the Jews and Gentiles were, were uh, beefing a little bit with each other, which wasn't uncommon. Uh, what had happened was, I'm sorry, what had happened was, that's horrible English. Usually when somebody say that, they have to lie about something. So what happened was, <laughs> Nero was at rule at the time. Right. And so um, the, the, the Jews were being persecuted and they were like kicked out of Rome. And so they were kind of dispersed. And then what happened was the church that had been established came, became primarily Gentile. And so the Gentiles were getting it in base. Gentiles is anybody who wasn't a Jew. Right. So all of us in here, unless you're of Jewish descent. So the Gentiles began getting it in as Christians in Rome, and then eventually after Nero died, the Christians came back to Rome, uh, or the Jews came back to Rome, and they started, you know, and then there was always, there's always a beef between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews were were the people of promise, the first people of promise of God, and so they used to kind of hold that against the Gentiles. Well, I mean, I know y'all extended to, I know God has extended salvation for y'all, but y'all still really ain't. Like, y'all not Jews, so it's really like a secondhand salvation, right? And the Gentiles thought they were better because for them, the Jews, they know the Jews had rejected, and that's why the Messiah had came, and and so that's why salvation was extended to them. And so there's always this strange dichotomy of conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And if you've been walking with us for a while, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Mace uh, preached on the five separations uh, or five degrees of separations based on Ephesians chapter 2. And so just so we can understand real quick this dichotomy or the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, um, let's, let's, let's run through it real quick, right? Um, so if you remember, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul goes through uh, basically five separations of, uh, of why, why, why the Jews were uh, close with God or his chosen people and what was keeping the Gentiles from being in an intimate relationship, Right, And so he says, he says uh, you were separated, being the Gentiles, you the Gentiles, were separated from Christ, which means Gentile, the Gentiles had no, we had no familiarity with redemptive history and no expectation of a Messiah. Right. He says, you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, which means we didn't have access to redemptive community. He says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. I'm not going to run through all the covenants, but the, there were a bunch of covenants. Um, that God had made with Israel so that he could show them that he was indeed going to keep them for himself. But he also promised them many things, and, and he, also, he also like showed them his character by holding up his end of the bargain even when they didn't. However, Gentiles didn't have access to this close-knit relationship of God promising them anything. Uh, he says that they were out without hope and without God in the world. right? And so that was the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Now, if we read verse 13... And uh, because Paul explains this in, 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 I believe, uh, 11 and 12 or 10 through 12. And in verse 13, he says something key in relation to the Gentiles. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we see this, this dichotomy of relationship between the Jews and Gentiles, but then we also see Paul uh, bringing in the reality that, like, even though they were Gentiles and didn't have all of these things based on, like, the Old Testament, uh, Paul is saying because Jesus came and died on the cross and because you rejected the Messiah, they are able to be saved just like in the same way that you need to be saved. There's no different type of salvation between Jew and Gentile, but they're all through the gospel, the power of the gospel. Everybody saved, the same. And so Paul says, so, so I preach the gospel to you unashamedly because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. Look with me at uh, verse 17. We're almost done. And he says, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's stop there. Now this has, uh, this is a very uh, highly debated passage. And it has a few different, not a few different meanings, but uh, a few different ideas that that go along with it. Because this righteousness from God can be translated uh, righteousness from God, or this righteousness of God can be translated righteousness from God which has to do with that, that gifted righteousness that we talked about, which is the righteousness of Jesus being merited to us based on nothing that we did, but everything that God did through Jesus Christ, right? And so that righteousness from God could talk about how, where believers are positionally in standing before God based on the righteousness of Jesus. However, righteousness of God also carries uh, a fuller meaning and a fuller context because it, it relates to something very specific about God's character, right? And so when we talk about righteousness of God, we're talking about basically God's, his His holiness and his justice, right? Now people, usually when you hear uh, God's holiness and his justice, people get real angry about that because holiness and justice mean that God hates sin and he has a standard, not not even has a standard, but he is the standard, the standard of right and wrong, good and evil, flow from his very character. And because that standard flows from his very character, he has to hate sin and he has to punish sin. Now, the problem, though, when we're understanding God's character is this idea of uh, isolating particular aspects of God's character as though those are the only aspects of his character. For instance, if God is only holy then we just see this very angry God who hates everybody and can't be in relationship with people because he has to hate sin. Same with his justice. Or if we think of God just in terms of his loving, his loving, uh, the aspect of his loving character, then we only see God as this loving God who deals with everybody regardless of if they're repentant or not. And he just accepts everybody as they are. And so we get into very dangerous territory, um, when we isolate the character of God and, and, and we don't know who he is in relation to us uh, and to himself, uh, when, we, when we don't have a good understanding of all of his, the aspects of his character, all of his attributes. And so it's very key for us to understand that God is holy. He does hate sin. Uh, he is righteous, meaning that he has a moral standard that flows from his character, and he expects that of us. Um, but he he is loving, and we see that because he graciously, not responding to anything we did, but responding to his character of love, sent his son to die for mankind. We see his mercy because he allows Jesus to transfer his righteousness to us, so that he hasn't doesn't have to judge us, but did all his judging on Jesus because he knows we can't handle it. And so, when we think about the character of God, we have to see the plethora of God's attributes all on display simultaneously working together in a wonderful way so we understand him to be a God who hates sin, yet compassionately extends his love to us through the Lord Jesus. And so when we think of this, when we think of this idea of this, the righteousness of God, we're, we're talking about the character of God. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so what, when we talk about total depravity, When we talk about propitiation, when we talk about justification, when we talk about gifted righteousness and explaining all of those things, we see the character of God. When we talk about God having to deal with sin, When we talk about him sending Jesus on our behalf to die on the cross, when we talk about Jesus, uh, when we talk about his atonement being sufficient for God, when we talk about him raising from the, when we talk about all the aspects of the the, the gospel, we have to understand that this is giving us a clear picture of who God is. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, for in the gospel, we see a clear picture of who God is. And then he goes on and he says, he said, "It's, it's revealed to us. And it's reckoned to us, it's, it's given to us, it's given to us from faith for faith. And I'm, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to go through this quickly and then, and then, and then uh, end with this. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, the gospel gives us a clear picture of who God is. And based on that clear picture of God is, who God is, we need that for faith and we need it for faith. Y'all with me? We need it for faith, faith being initial salvation, that trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. But we also need it for faith. As you've already come to trust Jesus, you need to continue to tap into that faith so you're assured of the character of God and we can walk with him in a way that will be pleasing and 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 and, 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 and it just brings good relationship. If you've been walking with us for a while, a while ago, Pastor Mace priest on faith, uh Uh, from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 faith is uh, the assurance or the confidence of things hoped for and he basically defined uh, faith as a humble swagger a humble swagger right now that seems kind of oxymoronic to talk about a humble swagger because usually a swagger doesn't like has no humility right we everybody we know what a swagger is right everybody knows what a swagger is no okay let me explain it just in case we all aren't on the same page as, in terms of what, like, what swagger is. Basically, see, I was about to say something and have to explain that too. I was about to say swagger is your steez, but then I was going to have to explain what steez was. But, uh, you, like, swagger is a particular confidence that you have about yourself. So people, people know that you're, like, when you have a swagger, people, like, like people know that you're confident about yourself and what you're doing. And you demand a, a particular type of respect because of the confidence that you're in yourself. Right? Now, with faith, we would call that a humble swagger because our humility comes from understanding that we're not trusting in anything in, our, in and of ourselves. Right? Our trust, the trust that we have is rooted in a person. In the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is, why, this is why it's so key when we talk about understanding who God is and understanding the character of God. When we have a humble swagger, the swagger is a trusted confidence in the expectation that you believe God to do what he said he would do. And so when so when when life gets hellish around you, like you don't despair and you don't run uh, to uh, like to 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 spiraling down because, you know, God's character and you've trusted in him and not yourself. And so you're able to trust God and lay back and not be afraid. And you can confidently and boldly go before the throne of God because you understand the character of God. You've seen him work and you know what he promised. Now we got to be careful. Because some of us have a humble swagger about some, some stuff that God hasn't promised to us. Some of us are holding God to promises and walking boldly in them when he hasn't even promised us some stuff. And so that's why it's important for us to know the character of God, to know what he said in his word, so that when we have this confidence that can rest in him, we know that he will do what he said he would do. And it aligns and matches with his character and what he said in his word. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, he's saying, listen, he's saying, I want to share something with you. I know we haven't met yet, but, and I want to visit you, but, and and I know you've trusted Christ, but I want to share something with you. I want to share with you the gospel. Because some, 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 maybe somebody in your crew is hanging around a little bit and they like the people and they like how y'all worship, and they like when y'all preach the word, but maybe they haven't really trusted Christ through the gospel. Maybe some of y'all have been walking with the Lord for a while, and you're discouraged. Maybe you have trouble trusting God for some some things. Maybe, maybe, Maybe you don't know what to look for in the character of God to be able to have faith in him. He's saying, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it so that you can experience life. I want you to hear it so that you can continue to walk in a healthy life. And so Paul is, Paul is reiterating to them an oldie but a goodie. And he's saying, I want you to believe the gospel. I want you to believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins because you needed him to. And I want you to continue to believe that. I want you to encourage yourself with that. I want you to tell yourself and preach to yourself the gospel to convict you of sin to point you back to the righteousness of Jesus. And so he said, he said, I, I don't want this to get old to you. I don't want it to be dull. He said, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to believe the gospel. I want you to continue to show yourself the gospel, to tell, I want it to be that slow jam that you listen to to get you real excited. I want you to have a boo-like relationship with your gospel. I explained that in the first one. Paul had a boo-like relationship with the gospel. Everybody, you know everybody got a boo these days. Oh, that's my boo. That's just my boo. Paul had a real boo-like relationship with the gospel. He always had his arm around the gospel. He was always flossing the gospel off. Paul got real defensive if people got around the gospel and didn't know how to handle her properly. If she wasn't in full purity on display, Paul got offended. Paul even went to one of his own. He even went to Peter and had to bash Peter because he's like, yo, you're not displaying the truth of the gospel. Paul had a boo like relationship with the gospel. And he's saying, he say, yo, I want y'all to have a boo like relationship with the gospel. I want her to always be around you. I want you to keep your affection for her. I want you to continue to, to pursue the gospel, to pursue after her. I don't want you to get tired of hearing her talk. I want you to have a boo-like relationship with the gospel. That's what Paul's telling us today. This is what the word that the Lord God wants us to hear. We can preach about everything else under the sun, but if we are not proclaiming the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel, we will never see souls saved. For it is the power of God for all who believe the gospel let's pray. Father, we we thank you, God. We thank you for this great word, this great message, the news of a son being freely given to us, a son coming and living in perfect obedience and humbling himself even to death, even to death on a cross for our behalf There was nothing that we did to deserve such a gift of righteousness, such a gift of love. And so during times like this during the year, we can celebrate the beauty of the message of the gospel being given freely to us for life. And not just life at a particular point in time, but for life eternally. May this never get old to us and may our hearts continue to be lit by the fire of the gospel as we seek to worship and praise you And show glory through our lives because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Be glorified, be honored, and be praised in the name of your son, the most excellent and most high, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said amen.